The Chicago Fed says the Midwest economy shows signs of tough times ahead. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about news from the local housing market. So there is a line of prefab cabins made in Latvia um, called My Cabin. And two men here, they're the only North American licensees to build these cabins, and they've kind of adapted them for American codes. All this is done in this factory I walked around in Waukegan. That is going to be wrapped in plastic and put on the back of a truck and delivered to somebody's site. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, January 26th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. How are you? I'm great, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. We've got lots of things to dig into today, as per usual. But let's start with a Gold Coast building that has been empty since the 90s, and nobody's quite sure why. Did not see this story coming. Tell me about it. Well, you know what's interesting is you would have seen this story coming 10 years ago. I actually checked into this same story a decade ago. At that time, I worked at Chicago Magazine, not at Cranes. Um, we didn't write something because there was really, there were no answers. Um, now we have written again that there are no answers, but it's actually, or we have written, I didn't 10 years ago, but it's it's a really compelling story the more time goes by, because the question is, why has so much time passed? So this building is um, in the 1400 block of Dearborn Parkway. It was uh, previously a 50-room hotel, and around 1990, a man bought it. Around 1995, he started rehab and as far to, rehab of the building. And as far as we know, that rehab is still going on today. Uh, and the building has not been occupied. Has only if if anybody lives there, it's only one or two spaces are taken. I, I hear rumors that there are people who live there, but as far as we can tell, it is primarily empty since 1995. This wow. is on the Gold Coast. This is not somewhere out in the hinterlands or somewhere where there has been decline. Of course, on the south and west sides, there are buildings that have sat empty for a while, and that has a lot to do with disinvestment and other patterns in Chicago. This is in the heart of the Gold Coast. Um, and as far as we can tell, uh, nobody, it, nobody has any complaints about the building. I went to the building department. They have no violations. The last violation is 2009 when the dumpster was too full. Um, the, I, I have passed the building several times recently to check on it. The, that wrought iron gate that you can see in this photo is padlocked. 
the door, the walkthrough door on the garage side back on the alley also padlocked. Um, the reason to do the story now is that it, it, like it bubbles back to the surface every once in a while. And a woman who lives near, who lives in old, the Old Town Triangle said on Twitter in early January, hey, what's going on here? And, and eventually flagged me. And I thought, oh yeah, it looks like nothing has changed in 10 years. And as it turns out, very little has changed since 1995. Um, the owner, a man named John Brown, is a real estate investor, has owned, uh, owns apartment buildings all over the city, has, has um, had other investments in the city. I tried to reach him. Uh, several of his phone numbers have been disconnected or they don't answer. I even, <laughs> really trying to reach him, I wrote a letter. I haven't done that in a long time. I had to find out how to get stamps. Right. Um, I wrote him a letter to the address that the tax bill goes to. I didn't hear back. So, you know, I had to wait for him to answer. Didn't hear back. Um, we do know that it's up to date on the tax bills. He, he, his firm has paid a million fifty-six thousand dollars in property taxes in the past 20 years, according to the Cook County Treasurer. La his latest tax bill is $73,000 last year. Up to date, as I said, no violations. Um, the, the facade you see in that picture was rebuilt after a piece of it collapsed in, uh, there was construction going on, the rehab was going on. In about 2005, it collapsed and was rebuilt. Uh, people tell me that prior to this, it was blonde brick, not red brick, but it's just sitting there padlocked, well-maintained Interesting. since 1995. Yeah. So there's, again, there's no issue. There's no problem with it. It's just kind of a little strange to see a a building in the Gold Coast sitting empty, especially that long. Especially that long. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, housing booms have come and gone. Yeah. Uh, the market in the Gold Coast has gone up and, and down. Uh, I looked into what these condos might be worth. And unfortunately, we don't know anything about the finishes inside, whether the finishes are even finished inside. Um, but one real estate agent told me that just given location and size, they would bare bones start at a half a million dollars. You're probably talking about considerably more once they're finished. It has an elevator that was put in in recent years in, uh, I think, the permit for the elevator. I can't remember now. I think it was about 2010. Um, it's got new heating and air conditioning. It's got new electrical, new plumbing. Everything has been updated. Looks really good. And honestly, if you walked by and didn't notice such things as the padlock on the gate, Mm -hmm. And most of the windows have no window coverings whatsoever. And you're right on, you know, it's, it's right there on Dearborn Parkway. At least those lowest floors, you would have curtains or something. Um, or if you didn't pass it a lot, uh, as several people have told me they have, and never see anybody coming and going, um, you might think it's, it's a viable occupied building because yeah. it's kept up, you know. And of course, a property owner has the right to keep it empty all the, sure. with all the bills paid and that sort of thing. It's just a question of why. Well, I hope that's a mystery that gets solved one of these days because I'm very curious. What I am dying for somebody to pass this story to the owner of the building and for him to call me and say, oh, yeah, you know, I just I was busy with something else and I forgot or, or whatever yeah. it would be. Um, yeah. I'm really hoping that somehow this story reaches him. Apparently, my letter and phone calls didn't. And he calls and says, oh, let me tell you all about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, keep us posted, Dennis. So talk to me about Caldwell Banker Realty. Um, they are closing some Chicago area offices. Tell me about this. They are. It was 
announced last week that they were closing offices and that was really all that they would announce publicly. So I um, started working the phones and I started calling agents and I found and then got confirmation from the top dogs at Caldwell Banker that it's five offices closing West Loop and four suburbs, uh, Barrington, Elmhurst, Downers Grove and Wheaton. And then one other suburban office, Libertyville, is being shrunk down to a smaller footprint, moving across the street to a much smaller space, which is another way of eliminating space. Caldwell Banker Realty has, prior to this announcement, had 41 offices. So this is a 12% reduction in footprint in number of offices. Um, once they confirmed this list I had compiled, um, they then were willing to talk a little bit more about it. And Ayub Rabah, the, the president of Caldwell Banker Realty, said, you know, this is, this is really a strategic issue we decided months ago. It does, according to him, it does not have to do with the downturn in the market. Uh, it, it's a strategic move because we had a lot of offices really close together within five or 10 miles of each other. So we're just trying to um, spread them out because agents don't spend as much time and nobody spends as much time in the office as they did before COVID and real estate agents are among them. Uh, buyers and seller or buyers aren't as likely to come into the office. You're much more likely to meet somewhere else. So there's not as much office space needed is what he said. Um, and so again, there are five, five that have been closed and one that is being shrunk. Now, one thing to keep in mind is Caldwell Banker Realty has been shrinking itself in, in from 2010 to 2019, according to the rankings, Cranes, somebody before me and now me, uh, was doing from database data that comes from Real Trends out of Colorado. From 2010 to 2019, Caldwell Banker Realty was um, solidly the biggest volume brokerage in the Chicago area. Right. Since 2019, since uh, At Properties, now At Properties Christie's um, surpassed it, Caldwell Banker has since dropped to the th dropped to third in volume, um, which I think is worthy of note in this case. The other thing we need to make very, very clear is there are two Caldwell Banker entities you see in Chicago. That's right. This one, which is closing offices, is called Caldwell Banker, um, Caldwell Banker Realty. The other one, uh, which is based in Shorewood, Caldwell Banker Real Estate, um, you and I just talked about less than a month ago, is adding offices. Um, so while this one is shedding offices, that one is adding offices, or they added offices by buying another company, by buying, um, uh, I've lost it, but they bought another firm and they are, they have now grown to 70 offices in the area from uh, Wisconsin around to Michigan, primarily including the Chicago area. Same footprint for this Caldwell Banker which has, which now has fewer offices. The, yeah. the reason there are these two different entities, this one that is shedding offices, this is corporate owned Caldwell Banker. The other one is a franchisee owned by a family uh, or a franchise, I should say, owned by a family for for years now. So um, the name is still out there, but this one is smaller than it used to be. I wonder how often that uh, gets confusing to people looking for a realtor that are like calling the wrong one or something like that. Yeah, well, and it, and of course, most people go to an agent more than they go to a brokerage. So it, I, I'm not sure how often it happens. But one of the one of the confusions that could have happened is that in that uh, merger, the other Caldwell banker picked up an office in the West Loop, 
And one of the offices, this Caldwell Banker, is closing in the West Loop. So while we're not necessarily overlapping with ourselves, we might have been overlapping with our sibling. Um, But I didn't get comment on that. All right. Well, let's talk about some uh, houses. In particular, let's talk about a $14 million condo that has found a buyer. Under contract, not yet sold, but this is at One Chicago. Many people would recognize it as sort of the newest addition to the north side skyline. Um, nobody yet has a great description for what it looks like. Um, one, one person said a, U, a USB port that has sort of been peeled away, but I'm not sure that's quite right. It's at 14 West Superior. Uh, and right after we reported four sales between five and $6 million and one sale by Ken Griffin at over $11 million, this one, remember, it's still only January. This one went under contract or was announced as, or marked under contract uh, at $13.95 million, nearly $14 million. It's, the, uh, it's a full floor. It's on the 73rd floor. Um, one Chicago has two towers. One is all rentals. The other is rentals. And then the top 30 floors of its 77 are condos. This is on the 73rd in that block. The highest price condo in the building is $28 million. That hasn't yet gone under contract. The developer, the agent wouldn't talk to me, as is common, uh, but I do know they have multiple units priced at over $10 million. This is the only one that's gone under, that is marked under contract yet. The highest price closed sale in the building is $6.1 million, which we reported a while ago. But when this one closes, if, if it closes somewhere near that asking price, and I would assume it will, 13.95, that would be um, certainly the highest price closing so far this year. Uh, it was amazing in 2022. We had nine sales in the Chicago area at 10 million or more. This would be the 10th. Sure, sure. Had it closed in, in 2022. Right. All right. Well, let's move to another one. And this is uh, retiring Bears CEO Ted Phillips. Also, there's a buyer in the picture for his home in Libertyville. Yeah, another one that's under contract, not yet closed. Ted Phillips is an interesting guy. He he has been with the Bears since 1983, so 40 years, but he's been the C- president and CEO since 1999. And one of the earliest projects for him was that giant renovation of Soldier Field that kept the Bears in Chicago. And one of the last projects for him was the announcement last summer that, yeah, we're, we're taking moving to Arlington Heights very seriously. Uh, what he said is, there is no option two. We are moving to Arlington Heights. We're not staying for the, uh, again, rehabbed Soldier Field. So those are sort of the brackets of his career. Right about the time he, he was the first bear, he made the first official announcement by the Bears that, yeah, we plan to go to Arlington Heights. He also announced that he was retiring. He retires in February. A replacement has been named. His home came on the market January 10th. This is in Libertyville. It's a short drive. It's like a 10-minute drive from the Bears facility in Lake Forest, which would be why he'd be in in Libertyville. Um, Came on the market at just under $1.2 million on January 10th. January 15th, it went under contract, under contingent contract. There may be something still to be settled. Um, So it looks like, you know, he... He managed this project pretty quickly. The, the Arlington Heights one could take years and years. He'll be off the he'll be off duty. But this seems to have happened pretty fast. 
All right, let's talk about another house. This one is for sale in Evanston, and this is, uh, um, you've described it as an, an angular 1990s house. Um, this is from architect Thomas Hickey. Tell me about this one. I, I'm fascinated by this house. I would have described it as postmodern, but once I spoke to the architect, he said, yeah, it doesn't really fit postmodernism, which is why we said angular. This is on Sheridan Road in Evanston, surrounded by historical houses. You can kind of see in that one photo, a Tudor house off to the left. And what Hickey did, what I found, what I learned from Hickey is the idea was in the early 90s, build a house that looks like the early 90s, but fits in among those historical houses. So there on the front, you've got these triangular roofs. There are a lot of Tudor uh, beamed Tudor roofs and things like that nearby. Um, it really was trying to fit right into the context of the neighborhood, of the historical neighborhood. But inside, you don't have to do that, right? Because now you're inside, you're not seeing the historical interiors. There are ceilings that tilt at all sorts of different angles. The house is built around a triangular courtyard and there's a waterfall in there. So you both see and hear what's going on in the courtyard from several rooms. The stairs climb up a tower and there's sort of a pyramid of skylights at the top, pouring daylight down. Really interesting house. Um, and so the, the real estate agent put it on the market and I asked, and it, it said, buy an architect. I asked and she gave me the name and I did a little research and found this man, Tom Hickey. So interesting to talk to him. So he designed this in 1993. It's 30 years later, or it was completed in 1993. It's 30 years later. He's now retired um, and painting in a loft in Michigan, in Southwest Michigan. He's 80 years old. Um, but he talked to me about this house and he said he really enjoyed designing it. The clients, you know, really wanted something of the time of the 1990s. And they wanted, here's a picture of this courtyard. They wanted that idea of a courtyard to really give you a, a sense of seclusion, a sense of Zen. Um, he really enjoyed doing this. He did a lot of other work. He, um, so he started out working for, um, Harry Weiss, who is one of the great Chicago architects, he then spun off from Harry Weiss with Ben and Cynthia Weiss. Ben was Harry's brother. Cynthia was Ben's wife. Um, and he was in a firm with them. He did North Shore houses like this. He also, for the same people who built this house, he built two additional houses down the uh, later in later years in Lincoln Park. He designed, as I said, North Shore houses. He designed apartments, apartment rehabs on the west side, the south side of the city. So not just working on the North Shore. Designed a church in the Austin neighborhood that it's called Friendship Baptist. And it's, it's hexagonal and has a roof that is inspired by African huts. Um, he also, I could not find any great photos of this because the building has been remodeled. But there was a, a building everybody knew in the 90s in Niles. It was the Bradford Exchange building, and it looked like a giant white circus tent. And hmm. that was the whole point was to look like a big white tent. It's been remodeled, and now it just looks like a big sort of bulky building. But at the time, that was really sort of the feather in his cap. And I found an old article where he was interviewed by Blair Kamen in the Tribune. And he was like, he was right out there on the edge of architecture at the time. And this house was a piece of that, which is interesting because as you can imagine, I had people on Twitter saying, oh my God, they should tear that thing down. It's so ugly. I hate it. I was stunned. I mean, I think this looks 
I think it looks really cool. I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting details. You mentioned the way the ceiling tilts up there in two directions, but also there's kind of a texture on the ceiling. I think one of the, the you know, what my eye went to was that couch must go with that house because it's so perfect in that room, that green and that interesting design, that shape of that couch. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. It's only been 30 years. Give it 20 more. You know, yeah. when architect, if the 50 year rule applies, when this house is 50 years old, everybody's going to love it. Right. Frank Lloyd Wright went out of style. All sorts of things went out of style and came yeah. back around their 50th anniversary. This house might well do that. Or angled ceilings like this might just honk people off for the full 50 years and into the future. <laughs> I'm guessing that they won't, that, w that more people will love the house in 50 years. But, you know, let's meet back here in 20 and talk about that. Right. Because, you know, we, we've seen what's happened with like mid-century modern houses that would be on the market for like a day. And also, why is there a Michael Jordan in the bathroom in this picture? I have no idea. It was, I got so involved talking about the architecture with the um, agent that this this is just a great photo that Rob pulled up from the listing of, um, you have a Michael Jordan cardboard cutout and for the photos, you stuck him in the shower. Yeah, you did. Of course you did. He does give you an indication of just how high the ceiling is in that room. <laughs> if it's a life-size, if it's a life-size Jordan, certainly. <laughs> Uh, of course, Zillow Gone Wild is always good for fun things like that of like weird listing photos. But once in a while, they'll have one that someone has like photoshopped a Freddy Krueger or a Michael Myers or something like that into the listing in the background. That's just very, very funny. But I've never seen a Michael Jordan. That's a new one. Too. I thought it was I got a kick out of it. Yeah, you usually see like the framed and autographed Jordan and Pippin yeah. jerseys and things like that. It's It's very playful. It is eccentric. It's not the same as a lot of other houses. Um, the seller... Uh, who was a radio personality in Chicago in the 90s, Vicki Truax. Her mm -hmm. husband, Tim Weigel, died years before she bought this house. Yeah. When she sold their family home in Evanston, she bought this. And she said she just had so much fun with all the light in the house and that courtyard we described. She emailed me some comments and, and said it was just a really pleasant, bright place to live. Sure, you can absolutely see that. All right. Well, let's talk about, uh, you teased this last time uh, that you were working on this story about some modern cabins built in a factory in Waukegan. Tell me about this. Well, these are really interesting. So there is a line of prefab cabins made in Latvia um, called My Cabin. And two men here, one lives in the city, one lives in Lake Forest. They're related, they're family. Um, they bought the light. They're the only North American licensees to build these cabins, and they've kind of adapted them for American codes. I describe them as having a small footprint, but big windows. They have two walls of windows. The siding is wood, but it's charred. It's, it's stained black, mm -hmm. black metal roof inside, much lighter wood, very simple cabinetry, that sort of thing. All this is done in this factory I walked around in Waukegan, that is going to be wrapped in plastic and put on the back of a truck and delivered to somebody's site. Now on your site, you are all you are separately laying a pad, a concrete pad or whatever for it to stand on. You have utilities brought in, but this is basically plug and play. All the utilities are in this building. They put it down on your pad, you plug in the utilities and you go. So the first ones were shipped last week and I spoke to the buyer of these two um, the, the first two units were shipped to one buyer because he's going to put them uh, together. One is for him and one is for guests on a piece of property in Rhode Island. And he said um, that he, he was a retired law professor at Yale and a retired minister as well. 
Um, and he had researched prefab uh, as well as having something built on his site. And this came out to be less expensive and more efficient because he could get it delivered right away, essentially, rather than have an architect design something, take a lot of time to build it. So as a test case, he sort of made a lot of sense because he had done all the research I wouldn't have the time to do um, and found that this actually, he was saving money and time by buying these. So what do they cost? They're small. They start at 80 square feet and they go to 350 square feet. At 80 square feet, you pay $37,000. At 350 square feet, you pay $86,000. Um, and, and again, that comes with kitchen, everything all in it, ready to go. It's all tightly wrapped and put on a truck. They are also designing one. So those are the models that come from Latvia. And then they've, um, they've added excessive insulation and other mm -hmm. things to meet codes in over 95% of the United States. That's all they offer in Latvia is those sizes. These two men have designed one that is 450 square feet. Haven't made any yet, but they'll sell those for, they say the price will be somewhere in the $130,000 range. Okay. Um, and again, you have the additional costs of building a, a pad for it to be put on and that sort of thing. But this was the most interesting factory to walk around. This is a 30,000 square foot factory with workstations for building up to about a dozen uh, cabins at once. They, had, they were shipping their first two, but they expect to be able to build and ship 120 in a year, 12 at a time. And they, like everything goes in, the cabinets, the toilet, it's all in there. And then it all gets lifted up onto a low bellied truck and driven out to wherever you're going to install it. And I love the idea that your utilities are just kind of plug and play. You're not just getting the shell of the house and then you have to have it wired or have to have the plumbing installed. It's just kind of ready to go. That's fascinating. Which is how it becomes more effective, according to this law professor I spoke to. And so one of the things is um, this family, you know, this, this is sort of a luxury product, mm -hmm. but their idea is when they get that up and running, they're then able to re-modify the plans to be far more affordable and used as ADUs in the city. Um, used for, for less. I mean, it's a little bit of an indulgence. I've got a beautiful lakefront property in Wisconsin and I'm going to line up three cabins. Um, it's a little bit, it, it's priced for a luxury buyer, but yeah. they intend for their next product to be a lower cost version of it that people could use as a coach house. We've talked a lot about ADUs. Um, this could work. Yeah. How interesting. What an interesting idea it'll be. Uh, I'll be curious to see how that how that moves forward for them. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? Oh, data, Amy. I keep talking about the year-end data. It's all in. I've digested it all. We've put it in charts, and it's all going to start running out um, in the next several days. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Coming up, Carvana settles its long-running dispute with the state of Illinois. We'll talk about that and more right after this.
This coming February, Crane's Chicago business relaunches its executive education program in leadership development, custom designed to hone the leadership skills of executives across the Chicagoland area. We're pleased to bring you new programming from Crane's Leadership Academy designed and taught by renowned faculty from Chicago Booth School of Business. The program will benefit mid and senior level executives from the Chicagoland area across various sectors and industries who seek to heighten their leadership skills for success during these uncertain times. Sessions will be held at the Gleacher Center in downtown Chicago from February 24th through March 24th, 2023, every Friday from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. A certificate of completion from Chicago Booth and Cranes will be provided. For questions about the program, visit cranesacademy.com or email cranesacademy at crane.com. This is the Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. In a sign that a potential recession could indeed be looming, according to the latest survey from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, business activity in the Midwest has improved slightly but remains well below the norm. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that answers to a questionnaire sent to key leaders in the Chicago Fed's five-state area found the overall index of economic activity increased from negative 41 in December to negative 27 in January. But with a score of zero representing normal economic growth, the Fed said that latest figure suggests economic growth is, quote, well below trend. Overall, the index for the past three months is the lowest it's been in a decade, except for the sharp down turn immediately after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Fed also reported that the pace of hiring decreased, as did respondents' expectation for the next 12 months. The survey says 59% of respondents expect, quote, a decrease in economic activity over the next 12 months, and the expected pace of capital spending remained negative. Heinz also noted in reporting that the picture is somewhat better in the manufacturing sector at negative 16 than in non-manufacturing industries at negative 31. Overall, the outlook is not favorable and might explain the recent wave of layoffs and a recent reduction in the growth of Illinois tax revenues. The U.S. Justice Department and eight states sued Google parent company Alphabet, calling for the breakup of the search giant's ad tech business over alleged illegal monopolization of the digital advertising market. The Justice Department said in the complaint, which was filed in federal court in Virginia, quote, Google abuses its monopoly power to disadvantage website publishers and advertisers who dare to use competing ad tech products in a search for higher quality or lower cost matches. Bloomberg noted in reporting that the lawsuit represents the Biden administration's first major case challenging the power of one of the nation's largest tech companies, following through on a probe that began under former President Trump. It also marks one of the few times the Justice Department has called for the breakup of a major company since it dismantled the Bell Telecom system in 1982. Bloomberg also noted that Google is the dominant player in the more than $278 billion U.S. digital ad market, controlling most of the technology used to buy, sell, and serve online ads. Google argues that the market for online ads is a crowded and competitive one. In court filings and in congressional testimony, the company has noted that its rivals include other major players in the ad tech market, such as Amazon, Meta, and Microsoft. 
The lawsuit marks the DOJ's second antitrust suit against Google and the fifth major case in the U.S. challenging the company's business practices. State attorneys general have filed three separate suits against Google, alleging it dominates the markets for online search, advertising tech, and apps on the Android mobile platform in violation of antitrust laws. The allegations in the DOJ's suit mirror those brought by attorneys general in 16 states plus Puerto Rico in 2020. And that lawsuit is pending in New York federal court. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that city officials are claiming success with last week's sale of social bonds that gave city residents first priority and were tailored to capture investors in the Environmental, Social and Governance, or ESG, market. Lawrence reported that as part of the $1.2 billion Chicago Recovery Plan put together by Mayor Lori Lightfoot and approved by the city council, the city issued a roughly $160 million bond offering and gave Chicagoans a one-day head start on the right to purchase the bonds ahead of the larger market. According to the city, 8% of bond offerings, or $12 million of it, went to Chicago retail investors who were able to make investments from a minimum of $1,000 up to $1 million. Illinois residents made up 24%, or $38 million, of the purchases. And $88 million in orders reportedly came from 11 ESG-focused investors, following outreach to the ESG market ahead of the offering to learn how to structure what services the city would fund with the bond proceeds. Lawrence noted in reporting that the proceeds will help fund seven projects already approved as part of the $1.2 billion Chicago Recovery Plan, including the construction of 2,000 units of affordable housing, purchasing temporary shelter space for those experiencing homelessness, replacing 200 vehicles in the city's fleet with electric vehicles, making city lots ready for sale, community development projects, and the planting of 15,000 trees across the city. Crane's sister publication Automotive News reported that an Illinois regulatory official said Tuesday the state has agreed to settle a long-running dispute with Carvana. The online used vehicle retailer's dealer license was twice suspended and ultimately restricted by Illinois over motor vehicle registration and titling issues last year. The Illinois Secretary of State's office first suspended Carvana's dealer license in May of 2022, alleging that the retailer failed to properly transfer titles for vehicles it sold and misused issuing out-of-state temporary registration permits. The agency's police department started investigating Carvana's business practices in February of last year after receiving consumer complaints about its registration and titling timeliness. Automotive News reported that per the settlement agreement, Carvana can continue to operate in the state. The retailer also admitted to violating Illinois law and agreed to abide by new restrictions. That according to a news release from the Illinois Secretary of State's office. Carvana, in a separate news release, said it will continue selling to Illinois residents via its website and through its vending machine-like location in Oakbrook. The settlement also allows the Illinois Secretary of State to suspend and revoke Carvana's dealer license again if it fails to comply with either the agreement or state laws, according to the agency. For background, Illinois stayed its initial May 10th suspension order on May 26th. It resuspended Carvana's license on July 18th. Carvana then filed for a temporary restraining order against the agency, which was granted in late July by a judge in DuPage County. Prior to the settlement agreement announced on Tuesday, Carvana was allowed to sell vehicles, though with some restrictions. It was required to register titles through Illinois remitters, which are third-party companies licensed in the state to process title transactions.
For more reporting on this topic and many others, visit Crane's sister publication, Automotive News. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.